Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Hear now the word of the Lord. Our Lord Jesus Christ speaking, he says, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Dear congregation, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. At any given moment in our lives, the only thing we really have control over is what we will give our attention to, what we will place it upon. So the question should always be, what shall we give our attention to? All day long, the glowing rectangles in our pockets are trying to tell us where to put it. The latest tragedy, the newest on-sale item that you've had your eyes on for some time, the latest polling results or political updates, bad medical news that you or a family member or a friend has received, the stock market, gas prices, inflation, or maybe just the pictures of your coworker's trip to San Diego. With this flood of information, Satan, our flesh, and the world also attempts to tempt us to give our attention to worldly fears and anxieties. If we set our minds on the things of the world, what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will wear, rather than on the things of God, then we shall be given to covetousness. And covetousness gives birth to fear. Fear that we won't have what we think we need. Fear that we won't have the things that we want. Fear that our families will suffer. Fear that bad things will happen to us. Fear that our plans in life will not fall out the way that we want them to or think that they should. Fear, ultimately, that God will not care for us as he has promised. Fear not only agitates our mental and our emotional state, but worst of all, fear distracts us from our duty to serve God, our duty to know him, to love him, to submit to him, to seek him, to seek his kingdom, to love his church, and to build it. It is true that the world is constantly changing, and it seems to be changing faster than it ever has because we have constant updates about how it is changing. And change brings to us a level of uncertainty, doesn't it? In moments of uncertainty, man's flesh kicks against God. It bucks against him. Why? Because uncertainty reminds us that we are not sovereign, that God is God, and that we are not. And so our flesh is given to fear, and fearful hearts cannot trust God. Fear inhibits obedience to God. It makes us impotent. Kingdoms are not established by cowering in closets afraid of everything. Wringing hands can't build walls and palaces and temples and homes. And this is why Jesus gives his disciples a remedy for their fears in this verse. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Christ's disciples are to seek his kingdom. They're not to go out seeking worldly remedies for their fleshly fears. A recurring theme throughout Christ's discourse in chapter 12 of Luke is, don't be fearful. Trust God. Be busy serving him. He tells his disciples to beware of the hypocritical leaven of the Pharisees early on, that they should beware of it, but not that they should fear it. He says in verse 4, they may kill the body, but after that they have no more that they can do. 
even the harm that they might bring to the body. They might kill the body. They might destroy the body of Christ's disciples, but even that isn't something for them to be anxious over. It's not something for Christ's disciples to fear. For if God cares for the worthless little sparrows that can be sold for a few farthings, not even permitting anything to happen to them apart from his kind will, then God shall much more care for them, his disciples, whose every hair is numbered, verses 6 and 7. Pharisees might drag them before rulers to try to get them punished and persecuted, but Christ tells his disciples that they don't even need to give any thought about how they are to answer beforehand when they are drugged before the rulers and the magistrates. For the spirit of their father will be with them and give them the words that they should speak at that time. Verses 8 to 12. Nor should Christ's disciples be anxious over their portion in this life, the things that they have trying to increase their earthly inheritance like the brother who comes in verse 13, or trying to store up their earthly goods, thinking that if they just have enough earthly goods, that that will give them peace. That will give them security in life, like the parable of the rich fool in verses 16 through 21. Life is more than the abundance of things which a person possesseth, Jesus says in verse 15. Only fools lay up treasure on earth while being paupers towards God, while being poor toward God, verse 21. Disciples should take no thought for their life. They should not be anxious about it and fearful concerning their life, since their heavenly Father knoweth what they have need of, even before they ask him, verses 22 and 30. Instead of anxiety, instead of fear, Jesus says, Seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Verse 31. And that's when we then come to the words of our text. In verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Truly the the opposite of fear in this situation is trust. The opposite of fear is trust. Faith in God seeking his kingdom while resting in his promise that he will freely give it, that it is his good pleasure to give us the kingdom. So from this imperative, from this command that Jesus gives his disciples, fear not, and the promise he annexes to it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, Jesus then goes on to urge his disciples to just sit there and do nothing. No, he urges them on to their duty to serve God. Anxious, faithless fear over the matters of this life will make them like servants who stop watching when their master leaves, who stop caring for their master's things when their master is gone, or like a steward over all of the house who, knowing that his master has, is gone, gives himself instead of uh, to the duties that he's been given Rather, to selfish, wicked self-indulgence. Not caring about his master. Not caring about his master's property, but abusing his position in the house. With no one watching, the house will be raided by thieves, Jesus says. And when the master returns, he'll take that evil steward that he set over his whole household, who served himself rather than his master, and will cut him in sunder and appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. Verse 46. Those who know their master's will, Jesus says, ought to be busy doing it, 
If they know it, then they ought to be busy doing it. Not giving themselves over to fear. Not giving themselves over to anxiety. Not giving themselves over to, to evil and to abuse of position and self-indulgence. Verses 47 and 48. Though it may be radical in our day where everyone carries around a list of the traumas that they've suffered. It might be radical in our day to say it, but it is true. Fear is to be repented of. It is a sin. The fearful and unbelieving will have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, we read in Revelation 21, verse 8. We, as Christ's disciples, have no reason nor any right to fear, for he has commanded us not to fear. Our Father's good pleasure is to give us the kingdom, and we must be active in seeking it, not fearing for our lives and idleness and self-indulgence. The exhortation against fear, this exhortation against fear is common all throughout Scripture. It has been said, maybe you've heard this little saying, there are 365 fear nots, one for each day of the, of the year. But the command fear not is actually found over 500 times in the Bible. The number is increased when we take into account how many times the Bible commands us not just to not fear, but to fear God. That is to revere him, to trust him, to fear nothing else besides him. As we continue through this year, as we continue through this decade, as we continue through the remainder of our lives, many things will indeed tempt us to fear. Things going on in the nation, things going on globally, ecclesiastically, familially, and personally. But in each temptation, we have a, comfort, a command and a comfort from God's lips. Fear not, I, thy God, am with me, with thee. I am pleased to give thee my kingdom. Now, God doesn't just say this. He doesn't just command us not to fear and grant us this comfort just because he's concerned with our emotional well-being, but also because living in fear, as we said earlier, makes us inept. It makes us impotent. It makes us ineffectual in the duties which God has given us to do. We have no cause to fear, regardless of the circumstances, because Christ has told us, fear not. We are his flock, and it is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Thus, as inheritors of that kingdom, we must be faithful and diligent stewards in it, laboring to care for it, to expand it, to beautify it. Now, this is done only through faith resting on the promises of God. Unbelieving fear and anxiety, faithless anxiety, cannot make us diligent in serving God and the callings he's given us. Only faith can do this. Only trust can do this. So then, what is fear? What does it mean to fear? What is the fear that Jesus is here forbidding, that he is commanding against? He is not commanding the healthy fear of a wise person, who, someone who doesn't tempt the Lord their God by sleeping next to an open flame and gas-soaked polyester garb. He's not forbidding locking one's front door at night. He's not forbidding wisdom, ungodly fear, a faithless fear. That is what is being condemned. Fear that is contrary to faith and reliance upon God. As Christians, we know that we have a threefold enemy, sin, Satan, and the world. And each of these enemies tempts us to fear them rather than God. 
And we actually see temptations to fear from this threefold enemy in chapter 12, before our verse. The covetous brother that we mentioned earlier was tempted to sinful fear over his worldly goods and his possessions. And he came to Jesus and he asked him to give him some of his brother's inheritance. Jesus responds by telling the parable of the rich fool, the one who built up his barns, who stored up all of his riches. But in the end, he left it all behind in death anyway, after God said to him in verse 20, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So Jesus tells this brother to to take heed, to beware of this sin of covetousness, to, to fear over worldly goods and possessions and just want more, thinking that that will bring security. That is sin to be repented of, Jesus says. The love and trust that he has set on earthly possessions should be set on God instead. Sin breeds fear, which is contrary to faith. We are to beware of sin and to trust God. So too, the world comes against us. We see this in chapter 12 as well, tempting us to be anxious over our food, our clothing, and our shelter. We are tempted, as the Apostle John says, by the lust of the flesh, by the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, 1 John 2.16. Instead of fearing that we will not have the things that we need, Jesus reminds us, your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. O ye of little faith, if God so clothe the grass, how much more will he clothe you? Nor should we give in to the temptation of fearing what Satan and his evil children who prowl around can do to us. Though Satan may cast the disciples into prison, though he may slay them, Jesus says in verses 4 and 5, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yea, I say unto you, fear him. Fear God, who is God both of body and soul. We see then that to fear man, to fear Satan, or to fear the absence of this life's wants and necessities is to turn from God. It's to turn from faith in our Father, our Father who is our provider, who is our protector, is the one who has promised to care for us. We are to fear God, not man, not the circumstances of life, not Satan. To fear God is to trust him. It's to love him, to place our faith in him. As David sang in Psalm 46, verses 1 and 2, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mounts shake with the swelling thereof, So when the the world is roaring and shrieking, when institutions, when denominations, when governments are collapsing, and all steady and stable grounding feels like it's being ripped out, out from under our feet, we must learn to hear and trust the words of our great God and our Savior. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. And as the church, we must in those moments learn to respond in faith. Jehovah of armies is with us. 
The God of Jacob is our refuge. To fear the world, sin, and Satan more than God is to turn from faith rather than turning from sin. We should only fear God. John Brown of Haddington defined the fear of God this way. Quote, to esteem, the fear of God is to esteem the smiles and frowns of God to be of greater value than the smiles and frowns of the world, end quote. William Gurnall said, quote, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. One fear, one fear cures another. When man's terror scares you, turn your thoughts to the power and wrath of God, end quote. So fearing anything more than God leads not only to sin, but also to an unwise and an ungodly, unprofitable life. Proverbs 1.17, what is the beginning of wisdom? It's the fear of the Lord. When the first generation of Israelites, for example, were brought to the borders of Canaan, they feared the inhabitants instead of fearing God. The power of men appeared greater to them than the power of God, and so they were afraid. God had promised them the land, but they didn't fear God. They didn't believe him. They didn't trust him, and so they were forbidden to enter it. So Abraham, the man of faith, feared Pharaoh rather than God, and he tragically sold his wife into Pharaoh's whoredom, despite God's promise to to open Sarah's womb, to give him a son, and to establish an everlasting covenant with that son and his seed after him in Genesis 17. The apostle Peter feared the wind and the waves more than he feared Christ, more than he trusted Christ, who had commanded him to walk upon the sea out to himself. At another time, Peter feared a little girl in a courtyard, and he denied the Lord Jesus. Peter feared that if he owned Jesus, he'd be put to death, even though Christ had promised that although Satan desired to sift Peter as wheat, that he had prayed for Peter, that his faith would fail not. Still later, Peter feared the Judaizers in Galatia and brought great disunity and schism to Christ's church there. Sinful fear, we see, took these saints off of their duty wasn't just that they sinned against God, but then the result of that, the consequences of that, is it took them off of their duty. And we've seen the same kinds of dreadful effects and the foolishness of sinful fear in our own lives, haven't we? How many of us have become sick with anxiety over finances? Then, in fits of worry, we've, we've abandoned the duties that we should be doing towards our family, toward our church, and toward God. Only for God to then show up and provide for us in the last hour. But we should have trusted our Father to care for our needs, and we should have remained diligent in our duties that he had given us. Let us obey Paul's command in Philippians 4.6 to be careful, to be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known unto God. It's only then when we put our anxieties upon God, when we turn from our fears and cast our cares upon him, that the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep our hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. Philippians 4, 7. To fear faithlessly is to sin. It's to distrust God. We must rather heed Christ's words, fear not. 
But let's notice also that Jesus doesn't simply tell us not to fear. He does. He commands us not to fear. But he also gives us the strongest of all consolations as to why we shouldn't fear. Notice that little conjunction, that little word for in the text. It should be underlined. It should be highlighted. Jesus says, fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What reason does Jesus give his disciples not to fear? Fear not, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. This transcends all that should come to pass, that could possibly come to pass in this life. Yes, when, when considered from a temporal, from an earthly, from a secular point of view, we see all sorts of reasons to be fearful, to be riddled with anxiety. But when we lift our eyes higher, which is what we're called to do, when we lift our eyes higher and set them upon God, setting our affections and our minds above where Christ, who is our life, sitteth on the right hand of God, then life's troubles, life's concerns, life's problems are put into proper perspective. We see Christ reigning over all as our prophet, our priest, and our king. Christ's flock might seem little, it might seem battered, it might seem tempted. Still, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are given a kingdom. The church looks with the eyes of faith upon Christ. Wicked men may rage, therefore. Satan can threaten us and throw all sorts of things against us. Goods and kindred might, might go. Yet our Father's kingdom, which he has given to us, is unshakable. To all threats, the faithful respond in Psalm 118, verse 6, Jehovah is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do unto me? This is the comfort and the peace that comes through faith. It knows, as the Heidelberg Catechism says, that Christ makes all things subservient to my salvation. Disciples don't have to fear because God has promised something greater to us. Something greater than sin, Satan, or the world could ever possibly take from us. Namely, the kingdom. Jesus said that it's our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. Namely, to give us him, himself. When Jesus appears on the scene, so too does the kingdom. That is the coming of the kingdom, is Christ himself. Our greatest treasure, our greatest hope, is not seen in these things on earth, our possessions, or what could happen to our body. It's, it's somewhere else. It's in Christ himself. And thus, it's all the more secure. Thieves can't break in and steal it because they can't take Christ. The Christian's comfort doesn't merely come from knowing that all things are decreed by their Father. That's true, and that is a comforting thought but that even the worst of circumstances that could ever possibly happen to us in this life pale in comparison, pale in comparison to what God is pleased to give us, his kingdom. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, for example, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Paul's sufferings were incomparable to the glorious inheritance of God's eternal kingdom in Christ. This is true not just for Paul, 
wasn't just true a few hundred years ago, thousand years ago, to the, to the great men of faith that we look to. It's true for us sitting here today as well. What business, therefore, do we have fearing about this world's goods? Why would we fear Satan's assaults? Our Father is pleased to give us a kingdom, and that far surpasses all things. What can shake such a firm foundation as this kingdom that God is willing to give us? No matter what occurs, our inheritance therefore stands sure in the hands of God. Puritan Robert Layton asked this, quote, How can you frighten the Christian? Bring him word that all of his fortune is ruined. His 401k is completely empty. Yet my inheritance is safe, says he. Your wife or child or dear friend is dead, though. Yet my father lives. You yourself must die. Well, then, I go home to my father and to my inheritance, says the Christian. End quote. So when our hope and our comfort, you see, are Christ, they're in him, then they are therefore immovable. And thus they are also immutable. Rooted in God's unchanging good pleasure. It is our Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And Isaiah, he says that God does all his pleasure. So if it's his good pleasure to give us the kingdom, then we shall certainly have it, and nothing can take that from us. What comfort this should be to us. If our Father is well pleased to give us a kingdom, it is ours indeed. God was pleased to grant us salvation in Christ, to make us co-heirs of his kingdom. Now, he doesn't give it to us because he had to. That would be comforting to some degree, I guess. But it was rather his good pleasure to do so. He chose to make us co-heirs. He chose to give us the kingdom. It was his good pleasure to do so. That means that our unchanging inheritance is rooted, is founded, not upon what we have done, not, not what we eat, not what we wear, not what we possess, Not what we do, not what happens to us or befalls us, but by and in his grace alone. What greater security could we possibly have in this life? Our hope is in a kingdom that is invincible to this world's change, invincible to this world's decay, and impregnable to Satan's assaults, and given to us upon no other basis than God's own good pleasure to do so. Moreover, our inheritance of this kingdom was decreed from all eternity. We read in Matthew 25, verse 34, Jesus says, Then the king shall say unto the sheep, the little flock on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. What better remedy for fear? What reason is there then to fear in this life? If God has given us the greater, he shall certainly give us the lesser. If he has given us the kingdom, should, he, should we not then trust him in all things and the, the daily matters of life and how they fall out? Matthew Henry writes, quote, the believing hopes and prospects of the kingdom should silence and suppress the fears of Christ's little flock in the world. Fear not the want of anything that is good for you. For, if it be your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, you need not question, but he will bear your charges thither. End quote. He'll take care of all of the, the, the passageway to the kingdom as well, he says, all the matters 
of this life. Now, in light of this, we must repent of faithless fear. But that doesn't mean that we are then careless with our lives. Prior to commanding us not to fear, Jesus commands us to seek the kingdom of God, verse 31. We shouldn't fear what God and his providence shall bring to pass in our lives, but this doesn't then liberate us from his summons to seek his kingdom. The comfort of our salvation should not make us stagnant. It shouldn't make us careless. We are not told to be fearless so that we might sit bravely upon the couch waiting for our hearts to stop beating so we can go to heaven. Christ comforts us in order to sustain us in our labors. That's why he comforts us. That we might be sustained and strengthened in serving him. Our minds shouldn't be consumed with worldly anxieties and fear. Of course not. But they should be set upon spiritual things. We should be spiritually minded, as Paul says in Romans 8, verse 6. As we saw earlier, after saying, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom, Jesus immediately begins exhorting his disciples unto their duty throughout the rest of chapter 12. Yes, the victory is sure. Christ has won it. God has promised it. But this is the very reason that we should go to battle, because the victory is already won. The promise of his kingdom is given to ensure that we don't become weary in well-doing, as Paul says in Galatians 6, verse 9. If the promise of the kingdom ever causes us to think that we're thus free to do nothing, then we really haven't understood it, have we? God promised the first generation of Israel that they would drive out all of their enemies, that they would take possession of the land of Canaan. But they still had to go in and defeat the inhabitants of the land. They feared, they refused, and they failed to enter. By faith, under Joshua, the second generation went in and took the land. They believed God's promise, and they acted upon it. That's what faith does. It doesn't just give intellectual assent to the promise. It believes God's promise. It lays hold of it, and it acts upon it. It lives in accordance with it. So, too, we are promised that it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, that his kingdom will certainly advance, and that the gates of hell shall not be able to repel the assault of the church. But we still must go out and fight under our Lord Jesus Christ's banner. We must still labor. In verse 35, Jesus instructs his disciples, saying, Let your loins be girded about for battle and for service, and your lamps burning. Verse 35. And he reminds them by way of parable in verse 37, Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he cometh, shall find watching shall find busy doing their duty. There's much work to be done in the service of Christ. And while the the work is as good as done in the promise and in the decree of God and in the accomplished work of Christ, it is still accomplished through us. This is why we must be ready, watching and waiting upon the Lord. We must both believe and build, acquiesce, and rest in the Lord, and also go forth and act. In verse 42, Jesus speaks of a servant who just sat around 
idle, just waiting around for the promise of his master's return to be fulfilled. That servant was not being faithful by being idle. He was being disobedient. Another servant, as we said, when the master left, instead of believing his master's promise to return, usurped his master's role and became master of his own life and tried to become master of the, those around him, the other servants. But the master did return. And he took that servant and he cut him in sunder, that's in half, and appointed him his portion with the unbelievers. We are not saved for sluggardness. We're not saved for slumber, but for service. We must remember that faith is not inactivity. I'm just going to sit here and trust God and the money will come in the bank. I'm just going to sit here and trust God and the situation will resolve itself. No, faith is living and active. It rests in Christ for all its salvation. And from this rest, it labors. We are not saved sluggards. We are saved servants. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, Ephesians 2.10. The victory is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, and Christ shall certainly go forth conquering and to conquer. He is victorious, but his victory is still being worked out through his appointed means, namely the faithful labors of his church. In conclusion, yes, we have nothing to fear from the world, sin, or Satan. Christ holds us in his hands, and nothing shall pluck us therefrom. Yet as Christians with new hearts, hearts that now love God, the desire to honor him, we must fear dishonoring him. Inactivity and apathy are great enemies of godliness. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.7, exercise thyself unto godliness. Godliness is labor. It's real work. Rooted in the finished work of Christ. Empowered by his spirit. But it's still labor. It's still service unto Christ. Sin, salvation, service. That's the book of Romans and the Heidelberg Catechism. On the last day, we shall enjoy the fullness of salvation's fruits, but for now we must be laboring in the Lord's vineyard. As Paul writes in Romans 14, 12 through 14, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. God has given us armor for the battle. We read about this armor in Ephesians chapter 6. But if you notice, there's, none, there's no armor provided for our backs. Why is that? It's because we are called to advance fearlessly and faithfully forward, not to retreat in doubtful fear. As the church, therefore, we are Christ's flock, and he is our good shepherd. He has laid down his life for us that we might inherit the kingdom his father was pleased to give us. Out of love for us, God sent his son. And out of love for us, Christ laid down his life. Jesus has now placed us, taken us, and placed us into his father's hand. And none 
shall snatch us out. Our good shepherd promises that he will therefore lead us in and out and that we will find pasture. That is, he will meet all of our needs. He is sufficient. Thus, all fearful distrust of him, all fearful anxiety over if he's actually able to do it, if he's actually willing to do it, is sin that must be repented of. And that sin just takes us off of our duty of following God and serving him. Yes, anxieties will arise. Temptations to sinful fear will come. But when they do, we must remember God's command to seek his kingdom and his promise that he will give it. And then in faith, cast all of our care upon him, for he careth for us, as 1 Peter 5, 7 says. Let not our hearts be troubled, dear Christians. We believe in God. Let us also believe in Christ and obey his command to fear not. No matter what our loving Heavenly Father shall bring to pass in our lives. Amen.